Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me is my co-host, Proceedings Magazine Editor-in-Chief Bill Hamlet. Hello again, Bill. Hey, Ward. As our regular listeners and subscribers know, occasionally we'll talk to Naval Institute Press authors, and so that's what we're going to do today. So why don't we bring on our guest? Joining us from Alexandria, Virginia today is General Larry O. Spencer, uh, U.S. Air Force retired. So this proves that we, we, you know, we're the Naval Institute, but we do have love for our joint service brethren, our Army and Air Force brethren. So General Spencer has written a book for the Naval Institute Press. It's uh, published in 2021, just came out. It is titled Dark Horse, General Larry O. Spencer and his journey from the horseshoe to the Pentagon. General Spencer, welcome to the show. Well, thank, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure for me to be here with you all. And, and, and thank you for uh, recognizing your joint partners. <laughs> we love the Air Force. Got to. You know, and, and I know you were, so you were a logistician uh, in the Air Force and, uh, you know, the Navy, you know, quite often. And Ward was a naval aviator and, uh, you know, the naval aviators, uh, they got to plug into Air Force tankers uh, for a lot of our missions. So, you know, it, it's, it's a true synthesis thing. Yeah, it, just to, uh, to give you an idea of why my decision to join the Air Force was the right one, as a, as a senior officer, I had the opportunity to, to fly on something called a COD. Never heard of a COD before, but it was a, it's a Navy airplane. out, and We flew out to a Navy carrier, uh, and that experience confirmed that the Air Force was the right service for me and not the Navy. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Uh, so, sir, your your book starts off, you know, it's, it's titled Dark Horse uh, Journey from the Horseshoe to the Pentagon. So what's the horseshoe? Uh, good question. So the horseshoe is a street. It's a 46th place specifically uh, in southeast D.C., and it's literally shaped like a horseshoe. So growing up, we've referred to it as, as a horseshoe. It was commonly uh, known in southeast that the horseshoe was 46th place. So it was the street I grew up on and uh, sort of cut my teeth on uh, coming up uh, uh, in, in Southeast DC. You were the son of, of an army veteran, Korean war veteran. Your dad was uh, a wounded warrior. Uh, so he lost one of his arms in combat in, uh, in Korea. Uh, and that, you know, that experience, you know, comes through in the book. You talk about it quite a bit about, how um, you know? On occasions, other kids would ask you what happened to your dad, and you and for a while you didn't even know the story. So, how how did that come about? And what what? How old were you when you found out how your dad had lost his arm? Yes, so you're right. So again, uh, my father uh, lost his left hand uh, in the Korean War uh, before I was born, uh, and so that's all I ever knew uh, of my father uh, growing up. Uh, but for whatever reason, you know, that generation uh, of military folks rarely talked about their service. Uh, you know, things like PTSD and, and you know, those sort of things you know, weren't even in existence in terms of acronyms and, and being recognized back then. So as a kid, I grew up with my father who wore a hook prosthetic in place of his left hand. And I never knew how it happened. I knew it happened in the Korean War. And that's about it. Um, and if you can believe this, uh, you know, and, and, you know, kids tease me about it. Uh, they called him Captain Hook, uh, which was a, uh, a caricature from, uh, from a, a, the, the uh, Peter Pan play. Uh, they made fun of him. Um, and they would always ask me what happened. And I would make up stories, uh, you know, big, you know, these war scenes. Uh, but the, the truth of the matter was I didn't know. 
Uh, and I was, I had made Colonel 06. Uh, it, it was that, you know, it had progressed that long. Wow. Uh, and I, I went in because my father was going to attend the pin-on ceremony. And I went over to his home to pick him up. And he handed me a book. Uh, it was a book written by uh, his company commander uh, when he was in the Korean War, who retired as a lieutenant colonel. Uh, his name was Bussy, Lieutenant Colonel Bussy. Uh, and the book was uh, Road to Yichon. And it was about the Korean War uh, and some of the uh, horrors of that war. And he never said anything about him being in the book or what the book was about. He just handed me the book. And so to be honest with you, I laid it by my uh, on my bed stand and it's it sat there for weeks before one night I picked it up and started reading it and was fascinated by the uh, how graphic the book was about the the war itself. But somewhere around the middle of that book, you know, I saw my father's name in it and he started detailing what happened to my father and how he lost his left hand. And I, I was just blown away. I mean, the fact that he had been tasked to move a bulldozer from a town that they were fighting in to a new town called Yichon because the flatbed truck that they would normally transport the bulldozer on had broken down. And as they were, so it would take them, you know, over 24 hours to get a hundred miles in a bulldozer. Uh, and at night, he fell off the bulldozer, fell onto the tracks while it was still moving, uh, instinctively turned his body over to get on the ground off the tracks. And unfortunately, as he twisted his body off the tracks, his left hand got mauled uh, in the gears of the bulldozer. Uh, and as you can imagine, back in those days, the combat search and rescue that we have today that can get a soldier or airman, marine or, or, or sailor to medical care very quickly. That wasn't the case in the early 1950s. Uh, and so he stayed on the ground for, for days, uh, fell into a coma, got gangrene in his hand. It was cold. Uh, and so he finally got, uh, uh, they put him on a ship, sent him to uh, Japan where his left hand was amputated uh, in a very crude way. And I don't mean that negatively. That was based on the medical technology at the time. And then he was sent back to Walter Reed for recovery uh, which is where he was stationed after his recovery and stayed there for, for the remainder of his career, which was a full 20-year career. So I didn't learn any of that until I made 06. So I was in my 40s uh, when I finally figured out what happened to my dad. So uh, rec recount for our, um, our listeners a little bit, if you will. Um, your, your career in the Air Force started with uh, enlisting in 1971, and you retired uh, 40 I'm doing math in public here, 44, 44. years later. Mm -hmm. um, and you were the vice vice chief of staff of the Air Force, so a four-star general. Uh, as you put in the book, you were one of uh, nine Air Force African-American four-star generals, one of only two who was a non-pilot. What were some of the highlights of your career? Yeah, that's, uh, that. you know, the, the fact that I even joined the Air Force was sort of, uh, to this day, sort of inexplicable explicable because uh, keep in mind, although my father was in the military and I had that uh, sort of military flavor growing up, you know, because my father had lost his left hand, we never moved. So I was born into an, as an Air Force, as an Army brat, excuse me, and never moved anywhere. So we stayed in the same house, you know, his whole, the whole time that he was uh, in the Army. And so I didn't really get the full flavor of the military. And keep in mind that 
this was in the early 70s. So anti-Vietnam protests, civil rights movement, Martin Luther King got killed, Bobby Kennedy got killed, really tumultuous time. And, you know, and the military was not very popular back then. And so the last thing I or my friends wanted to do when we graduated high school was to join the military. Uh, but I, but, but my father had planted that seed in my mind, that sense of patriotism, uh, that sense of service. And so <laughs> I'm going to ask you both to use your imagination here for a second, because you're going to need to, uh, because, if you can imagine me, 19, early 1970s, um, I was I just graduated high school, uncertain as to what I was going to do, uh, had a ton of football scholarship offers. I was the oldest of six kids. My mother had not graduated high school. My father had been in the Army. No experience with college whatsoever. A very confusing time for me. Uh, I, I got a job as a GS1 in the Census Bureau over in Suitland, Maryland. Uh, and one day I was I was at a mall, actually over off Branch Avenue in Suitland, Mar in Maryland. And picture this again, use your imagination. I had an afro the size of which you cannot only imagine. And I was walking through the mall. And as a sign of the times, I purchased a purple jumpsuit. If, I, I'm again, you got to use imagination here with matching purple platform, high platform shoes. And I had that in my bag. And I was walking through the mall, just looking around, and I came in front of an Air Force recruiter's office. And I, I was fascinated with the pictures of the airplanes and, and just some great pictures. So had no desire uh, nor plan to join the military or the Air Force at all. But I was fascinated by the pictures. A, a, an Air Force recruiter stepped out into the hallway uh, and started talking to me. And literally, I sort of stumbled into his office and about an hour later, I stumbled out of there and I was in the Air Force. I mean, it happened that, uh, you know, that quickly, uh, totally out of the blue. Parents knew it didn't know anything about it. I didn't wake up that morning thinking I was going to join the military. Uh, and it, it happened that quickly. Uh, fast forward, uh, I got in the military. I, I loved it, loved the discipline of it, um, loved the camaraderie. Um, and, and, you know, it just really enjoyed it. Now, again, keep in mind, it was the seventies. So <laughs> we all pushed the boundaries of, you know, growing our hair and, you know, it, it was just, uh, you know, looking back on it, it was kind of silly, but you know, that's what all my friends did, uh, to just give you an example. Uh, I, I, I got married and at 19 years old, my, my wife and I were 19 when we had one kid and one on the way. And as you can imagine, it, you know, leave it to the military. They decided to send me on a one year remote tour when I had a kid that was less than a year old and one on the way. Uh, and so, again, uh, use your imagination here. But I, I went to Taiwan for a year and, you know, young 18, 19 year old, uh, you know, didn't know any better. My friends and I made a bet that we could we would go the entire year without a haircut, uh, if you can if you can imagine that. Uh, and uh, we, I won that bet along with several other my friends. Now, the, the problem is, and keep, I was working in the post office. I was in the back, you know, putting up mail. We had a pretty cool boss. Uh, he was a master sergeant, E7. He said, look, guys, you do your job. Keep your hat on. If nobody says anything to me, I'm not going to say anything to you. Again, in hindsight, was that 
you know, am I proud of that? No, but it, you know, it, it is what it is. Uh, but again, it, it wasn't like I was a standout. All my friends were, were doing the same thing. So I, after that assignment, I got assigned to Whiteman Air Force Base, which is not all that significant. I mean, it only in the sense that Whiteman Air Force Base was part of Strategic Air Command, which doesn't exist anymore. But Strategic Air Command in the Air Force, that was the serious command. I mean, it was the, the back in those days, the, the B-52 bombers, the ICBMs. It was it was a no kidding, spit and polish, uh, you know, dress and appearance command. Uh, and I got there, uh, and shortly after I was there, a chief master sergeant, which is the uh, highest enlisted rank uh, in the Air Force, uh, caught me one day with my all of my hair in all its glory, uh, and and didn't, to his credit, did not uh, wasn't interested in getting me in, getting me in any trouble, uh, because he'd seen me around, and he he saw that I was you know doing a good work, but he. Uh, one early one morning, uh, call me, uh, call me out about my hair, asked me to get up from my desk and follow him. Uh, he took me out. And by the way, maybe you can answer this question for me. Uh, every chief master sergeant slash E9 that I know has a pickup truck. Why that is, I have no idea, <laughs> but he, but he had a pickup truck. He put me in his pickup truck and he took me to the barber shop and had the biggest smile on his face as he told the barber to give me a regulation haircut. And so I remember sitting there looking at him and then looking down at the floor and all my hair falling down on the floor. Uh, but as it turns out, that was a turning point in my career because he talked to me on the way back. He actually didn't take me right back to work. He took me over to the base park and we just had a good conversation. Uh, and he, he said, look, you know, I know it's hard to believe, but I was young once. I get it. He said, but look, you're in the Air Force now. You're in the military. If you want to grow, if your priority is growing your hair, get out and go grow, grow your hair as long as you want. But if you want to stay in the Air Force, you have to follow the rules. And he said, I've seen you. You're a good guy. Uh, don't mess it up by, you know, by by doing things that, that are silly. Uh, and, and that stuck with me. And he said, oh, by the way, uh, are you in college? What are you doing? Uh, what's your what are your goals? And I didn't have any. Uh, and he took me to the base education office. And I signed up for college courses on the spot and I, and he stayed with me. He, he made sure I studied. Uh, it was amazing. And by the way, that developed my deep respect for senior enlisted members in our, in our military all across the services uh, because they became an anchor for me until the day I retired. Uh, but that guy turned my life around, turned my career around. I got my degree. I got commissioned. And then, of course, made the climb from second lieutenant up to uh, to four star. Uh, but yeah, that uh, there were points in my life and points in my career where mentors like that were so helpful. Many of them were senior enlisted members, uh, and I'm so so grateful for that. So, yeah, I'm sorry to take you down memory lane. And, and so, make, so, what rank were you at that time? Uh, I was I I was an airman first class, so an E three at okay. the time. So pretty, pretty short that you'd been in two, three years. At that yeah, point. I hadn't been in very long at all. And again, I, I don't want you to think I was some kind of rebel. Every everyone that were, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old were pushing the limits uh, at that point. Again, in hindsight, you know, would I recommend other people do that? No. But, you know, again, I, I had to grow up sometime. And and that chief mass sergeant helped me grow up. Do you well, still I, have that purple jumpsuit? I do not. <laughs> My wife threw that away at, at some point without asking me. 
<laughs> I, I have to, I, I always I always laugh when I look at pictures, uh, Navy pictures of the 19, you know, 60s and 70s. And you see these, uh, you know, pork chop sideburns, yeah, sideburns, right? yeah. like huge sideburns that people had and the yeah. mustaches. Cruise books right. from the Zumwalt era are right. Oh right exactly. yeah. There was a lot of long hair, a lot of long sideburns and right. mustaches. And yeah, you yeah know. I, I'm, I'm surprised that that hasn't come back. You know, most phases, most things, even clothes. You know, double-breasted suit yeah. will come in and it'll go away and come back. That that style, those styles haven't come back. And so I, I found that interesting. Maybe maybe one it. day. I don't get it. They look so good. <laughs> right. <laughs> so um, the book is called Dark Horse, uh, which you know is is a metaphor and also a reality. Um, so talk about your journey uh, as an African American officer against the backdrop of the African-American experience? Yeah, great question. So again, keep in mind, growing up in, in Southeast, obviously, uh, as a culture, uh, there was no uh, segregation at that point. But my reality, there was a segregation in the sense that uh, I and all of my friends, we were isolated in an inner city street uh, all African-American neighbors, all African-American students in my school, in my church, um, everything around me was, was, was African-American culture and experience. However, when I would venture outside that bubble, if I can use that term, and I would see when we went to the doctor, the doctors did not look like me. When my, my father went to, you know, buy a car, the, the sales folks didn't look like me. The you know, folks on TV didn't look like me. So that was a struggle for me trying to, and people call me a minority. You know, what does that mean? And, and why are you calling me that uh, at best, uh, uh, to, you know, to, to put a fine point on it. So that was a struggle for me. The school system was not very good at all. Uh, again, you know, I don't blame my parents. They, they did the best they could uh, with what they had. Um, but I didn't have a lot of mentorship, a lot of hope, help with homework and that sort of thing. So I wasn't a very good student. Um, and I, so I barely got through high school. Again, as I mentioned, uh, back then, um, you know, if you were African-American, and, back, and by the way, to some extent, it's still the same because I, I visit a lot of high schools today. Um, you know, when I go in high schools today and I talk to a lot of the students, particularly the males, a lot of them either want to be the next LeBron James or the next Jay-Z. Um, and it, it was no different for me. I, you know, it was all about sports and athletics and unfortunately not about uh, academic acuity. Um, so I wanted it was all about sports for me. And when I graduated high school, my goal was to be an NFL player. Uh, obviously, that did not happen. Uh, but so now I find myself in the Air Force in the 70s. Uh, again, a lot of issues with civil rights and race relations. They actually had the race relations courses back then where they would force people into a room and uh, it didn't work out very well because it ended up being a lot of arguments and a lot of disagreements. And I think they were, they were well intended, but I don't think they uh, achieved the purpose they were trying to achieve. And so I, my enlisted time was, was sort of entangled with all of that uh, and, and trying to deal with all of that uh, until I, again, ran into this chief master sergeant and got my degree. And then once I was commissioned, uh, by the way, keep in mind, you mentioned that I was one of nine African-American four stars. I think there may be 10 now. Um, when I came in the Air Force, when I enlisted, there had not been an African-American nor female or person of color at all four star in any service. 
So that was my perspective when I came into the military. Um, and so thinking about things like that were not on my radar because they didn't exist. Uh, and so that was sort of my, my sort of background. But um, one of the things we haven't talked about is uh, I, in, in addition to my father being such a hard worker and having such a strong work ethic, work ethic I spent the summers on my grandfather's farm, which took me out of the inner city, at least for the summers, and got a real strong work ethic from my grandfather as well. And so one thing that I that's been that was consistent with me is I was going to work hard and, and, and let the chips fall where they may. You know, people ask me all the time, you know, how do you be, how does one become a, a four star? And of course, number one, you shouldn't be thinking about that anyway. That shouldn't be the goal. Uh, but number two, there is no answer to that because that that, that, that there's so many intangibles and, you know, uh, things that happen uh, that you, no one can predict that. Uh, but what you can predict is how hard you work and how hard you focus. And so one of the things I hope that comes through in the book is, you know, you, you can't control where you were born. You can't control your circumstances. Uh, there's a lot of things you can't control, but there are some things you can control. And those things you can control you should try to control. And one of those for me was I'm going to work hard. I'm going to stay focused and whatever happens, happens. And I was so fortunate throughout my career because, again, I had so many mentors that just provided opportunity. And that's all I wanted. You know, they provided opportunity for me to step in a door or to step into a job. And then it was up to me to perform. You, you make the point, sir, that uh, you're one of uh, two uh, non-pilot four stars uh, or, or African-American four stars in the, in the Air Force. Was that a, was that a choice or was that, uh, you know, colorblindness or, uh, you know, failed to flight physical? Were you, were you hoping to be a pilot or, or did you choose to be a logistician because that was, you were drawn in that direction? No, that's a great question because that, by the way, that, uh, that's still an issue today uh, in terms of minorities, if I can use that term. And, women going into what I would call operational career fields. Not many do even today. Uh, but, but it wasn't, I didn't fail a flight physical. I, I, the, the issue was where I grew up, I never knew any pilots. I didn't know anything about pilots. I didn't know anything. That was foreign to me. Uh, the first time I ever visited an airport and flew on an airplane was when I, when I was on my way to basic training for the Air Force. So it wasn't on my radar. When I talk to my counterparts and, and I ask them all the time, why did you become a pilot? What, you, know, how, you know, what triggered that? And, you know, nine times out of 10, the response is I knew early on I wanted to be a pilot. I, now, my parents took me to an air show. You know, my uncle was a pilot. You know, th there was something that sparked uh, flying in them early on in their lifetime uh, that wanted them to be a pilot. Uh, in, either in the military or not, I never got any of that. And so, no, I, I did not avoid being a pilot. Uh, it just was not even on my radar screen. On my, It was something that was, uh, you know, I didn't even know. I, I gave little, very little thought to it. It just wasn't something that, uh, that was of interest to me, not because it wasn't interesting, but because no one had ever approached me about it, and I just didn't know anything about it. So is this a problem that we're solving now? And did we start to solve it across the arc of your career? Because I'm thinking I was in four different fighter squadrons during my time as an F-14 guy. And I flew with two African-American pilots. And there were two other 
African-American radar intercept officer. So a total of four African-American males, no African-American females uh, during my, my 20 years of flying tactical airplanes. Um, I will say I just received the latest uh, issue of Tailhook Magazine. And in the back of Tailhook Magazine, they show you who's just taken over command of air wings or air stations or aircraft carriers. There's one female of, let's say, a dozen of these thumbnails, one female, zero African-Americans. It just jumped out at me when I was thumb checking this most recent issue of that magazine. So is this something we're solving to your eye? Um, or like you said, is, is this still an issue? And if so, how do we fix it? Yeah, good. It, it is definitely still an issue. But it's, it's not it, it's the military is not racist. So it, it's not the military holding people of color or women from going to operational career fields. It, it's, it's a lot more complicated than that. Uh, let me give you an example. I, I before right before I retired, I, uh, I went up to brief, uh, talk to a group of, of young high school students. It was a Black Engineer of the Year program. So these were all STEM students, high SAT scores, you know, uh, very smart students. And it was a room full of them. I'm going to guess there was, you know, 150 to 200 students, all very, very sharp, uh, success oriented. I had with me a friend who was the program manager for the F-35. Uh, and we showed pictures of the F-35, every variant you can, you know, the, the takeoff, you know, short takeoff and landings, carrier variant. Uh, it, it, it would water your eyes. I mean, when I finished listening to that presentation on the F-35, I was a four star at the time. I wanted to go be an F-35 pilot. I mean, it, 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 it watered your eyes. And at the end of that presentation, I asked the group, OK, because I knew this was an issue. How many of you are ready to go sign up to be a pilot in one of our services? And not one hand went up. And I said, okay, well, what is it that you want to do? And, and they were all good things. They wanted to be engineers, space, you know, doctors. So they wanted to do important things in the military, but it was hard to get the aviation bug uh, in there. I don't have the answer fully other than I think what happens is going back to my experience and talking to my counterparts, that spark is still not being lit early on in their lifetime. Uh, there's, they aren't folks talking to them about uh, aviation and the wonders of flight uh, when they're in, uh, in, in elementary school or junior high school. So that's why I think part of the solution is we need to get folks in flight suits into schools very early on. I think my personal view is high school is maybe too late, but I think we need to, at a minimum, junior high school, getting folks, and if we can, folks who look like them, into these schools to expose them to how great, you know, I can't think, I can't think of a better job in the military or out the military, but particularly in the military, I can't think of a better job than flying an airplane. I, I just can't. Um, so if I knew what I knew now, I certainly would have tried to be become a pilot in the Air Force. So, yeah, it, to answer your question directly, it is still an issue now. And by the way, I, I recently had dinner with uh, uh, General C.Q. Brown, who's the, by the way, first African-American chief of any service. And that just happened a year ago. Um, 
and and he's a fighter pilot, F-16 pilot, I believe. And he was telling me that as he was coming up as a fighter pilot, more often than not, he was the only African-American in the squadron uh, as he was flying. So, yeah, it, it, it's been a problem. It's still a problem uh, that we haven't solved yet. And, and, and we, we've got to figure it out, though. So let, let's open the aperture a little bit um, against your experience. As, as you said, the military is not racist. We, these just describing the numbers is not an accusation of overt racism. Correct. But but more of a, like you said, um, a environmental, where are you raised? What are you exposed to? Who are your mentors? Um, does anybody in this warfare especially look like you kind of a thing? Right, right. Um, so, uh, you know, you can you can sort of see, um, you know, buses of, of uh, you know, from minority school districts going to air shows and, and this kind of thing. And but when they get off the bus, you know, do any of the Blue Angels look like them? You know, right. like, OK, I get it. You, you want me to like watch this and, and sort of admire the white guys. But it's not resonating with me in a, in a, in a metaphysic way, a right. spiritual way. Right. So right. Until the numbers are different or this looks like a viable option instead of, you know, pro basketball, the NFL. Right. The things just like we don't have captains of industry who are talking about being on a board or getting your MBA and, you know, that sort of thing. It's always this kind of thing. Like you, you, your analog was perfect. LeBron or, uh, you know, a, a rapper, Jay-Z, right? right? It's right. like, yeah, that's what you do. You're an African-American. You do those two things. Right. right? And they're uh, successful. They're, they're very successful. Well, they're there. And you see that when you watch TV or if you're on right. social media, you know, right. LeBron's, you know, he's got a social conscience. He's got a right. huge social media footprint. Right. Like that's who you want to be. Right. Just, right. And just like Tiger or, you know, right. name Beyonce, right. whomever. Right. right. But this this paradigm is fairly narrow. Right. right? So let, let me ask you to talk to because we're wrestling with um, here at the academy. Uh, there are some alums who are who are like accusing the leadership of of this critical race theory sort of dogma. Right. And, and uh, so let me just ask the most general question. Where are we in America with respect to equality to your eye right now? And we've had some high profile trials. Kenosha and Atlanta um, had different outcomes. Um, obviously, we had some social strife a couple of summers ago on the whole BLM movement. So against the backdrop of your success in the military and some would just, you know, the vets are like, well, the military is colorblind um, and, and just dismiss it like that. It's not an issue. Right. So let me ask you to use your pedigree um, to comment on where we are uh, with respect to equality in America today. Well, first of all, that that's a really uh, great question. And by the way, as I was listening to you, you know, someone should recruit you to go work this problem for the for the department, because you have a very good understanding. Uh, of the issues and and what and, and how things look today, um, I, I don't mind telling you one of my biggest frustrations. Well, first of all, our country today, and, and I'm not going to get political at all, but our country today, I think everyone would agree, it's it's very divided, and and that's unfortunate. We've been divided before, and you know I'm optimistic that at some point we'll come closer together, but we're very divided. I think some of that is attributable to. Uh, I think it was uh, uh, President Eisenhower uh, who dis described politics like a road 
when he said the road, the middle of the road is drivable, but the left and the right are in the gutters. Uh, and the point he was making that was that we're always going to have extremes, but if as long as those who are on both sides sort of stay in a window or in, in the middle of the road somewhere on center left or center right, the country continues to move down the road. If we ever, um, uh, if we ever surrender to the far reaches of both parties, we will we'll be in trouble. And, and I think that's kind of where we are now. Uh, we've got extremes in both parties with the biggest megaphones and, and those are the ones you see on TV. It doesn't mean that's where most of the country is, but it does mean when you turn on your favorite cable news network, that's what you're going to hear. And I think that's unfortunate. Uh, so to your question, uh, I, the biggest disappointment I have right now is that race has been re-interjected into uh, our body politic. And, and I don't know why. I don't know when it happened. I don't know how it happened. Uh, but I, I, I am very distressed by it. Uh, because there's no, it's not necessary. It doesn't help anything. It doesn't, it doesn't, certainly doesn't bring us together as a nation. And I just think it's extremely, extremely unfortunate for our country. And I hope we figure it out, you know, I, you know, without going into critical race theory, I'll just, I'll just say this, you know, the, I, I've never taken a critical race theory course. Uh, all I know of it is it was a theory that was, uh, dates back to the seventies that essentially says racism is more than just people, some people who are racist. It is, it is embedded into our, some of our systems like criminal justice or like housing. And my understanding is that theory, and it is a theory, academic theory, was introduced in the context of law schools as they talked about criminal justice. Uh, I have never heard of it being taught K through 12, uh, and, and, and I've never really heard of it being taught it, 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 to any large extent in college courses other than related to uh, uh, law school. Now, now that, it, and I say that only because I am wrestling with, and, and by the way, you can accept that theory or not. It's not, the theory in itself, I don't think is good or evil. It's a theory that people can look at and say, I reject that, I don't buy it, or I think there's something to it. Everyone's free to make that choice. But as an example of what I just talked about, how did that become center stage with in our political discussion? I, I don't I, that 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 distresses me. Uh, and so, you know, from a guy who as a kid uh, was at the March on Washington uh, in D.C. With, when Martin Luther King gave his his uh, famous speech. Uh, to see the progress we've made uh, through all these years uh, to the point where we actually had an African-American president in the United States, uh, to, to now hear a lot of this negativity uh, being dredged back up is, uh, I can't tell you how distressing that is for me. And again, I, I, the, one of the reasons I'm glad you asked the question, and I'm, I'm never afraid to, 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 to answer, at least from my perspective, is I think we need more civil discussion about it, like you and I are having right now, uh, not in a political through a political lens, but through a human lens. You know, I want to understand how others who aren't like me, who grew up different from me, I want to understand how you feel and what you see. And I would hope that folks who don't have my experience would want to hear what my perspective is, because I think 
uh, I'll just give you a quick anecdote. And I know I'm talking too much here, but uh, a, a, a former boss of mine actually retired as a four star, uh, grew up in Texas uh, in, in an environment where, you know, uh, uh, he uh, folks he were around, uh, let's, let's just say, weren't very enlightened when it comes to diversity. Uh, so that's the way he was raised. Um, and he once told me that he uh, went, as it, it, he joined the Air Force and as a lieutenant, he was assigned to Vietnam uh, flying forward air control uh, as a, a forward air controller flying. I think they were OV-10s, this little, little airplane with a, one prop on it. Uh, his roommate was African-American. Um, and by the way, happened to be the son of uh, uh, the first uh, four-star general, Chappie James, happened to be his, Chappie James' son, was my former boss's roommate. And he said that literally changed his life because they were forced together as roommates. And all of that, all of the stereotypes he heard, all of the negative things he heard about African-Americans um, were all broken down because he said this this guy was a good as, as good a pilot as I was. He, he had impeccable integrity. He loved his family. He had goals for himself. He wanted to do serve the country. Uh, and he said, though, that's not what I heard growing up. And the point I'm making is one of the reasons the military tends to lead society in these issues is because we are forced together, whether we want to be or not. But once we're forced together and have to trust each other, we learn that, you know, this stuff about races and all the stuff I may have heard or may not have heard is just not true. You know, we are it, we, we are we all have a singular mission and we're all the same. We, we love our families. We love our country. We're here to serve. So, yeah, I am very distressed. I don't have an answer for it. I'm just going to be honest with you. I don't know, you know when the day will come that we can wake up and no one ever thinks about race. I don't know when that day will come. I do know we're not there yet. Uh, and I'm highly distressed by it. If I could fix it, I would. Uh, but, uh, I, I just don't, I don't, I don't have an answer for it. So with respect to the, you know, when people to, to come to me and they're like the colorblind thing, I'm like, look, I, I, I don't think that that's an accurate label. What I will right. say is the military regardless of branch of service or warfare, especially is a job of great consequence. Correct. You know, and, and so as a loggy, either you can balance the books and get the stuff to the warfighter, or you can't. And if you can't, right. you're not going to last very long as an aviator, either you can land the airplane safely and get bombs on target or you can't. So with respect to those outcomes, the job is inherently, it doesn't care about race. It doesn't care about gender. And, and so I think that's what I, where I believe they're, they're, the, the military emerges as uh, you know, a, a good analog for where the country should go. And when we have so much time to argue on social media or fight in the streets, that's a function of people with too many material things and not enough things to do, right? Um, I mean, if you can travel halfway across the country in an RV to attend a, a rally of a hate group, it's like, so what's your day job, bro? Right. You know, I mean, obviously nobody's missing you, you know, and so I, I think that's what's happening is there's too much, too many iPhones, too much downtime, too much material well-being against a lack of sort of, you know, reasons that we need to get along, you know, things of great consequence. And so maybe this is just a uh, 
a time and a place. We were just talking about work about the revolt of the admirals, which is a Navy Air Force kind of thing, right? Um, and so when people are like, hey, everything's so political, I'm like, hey, check out 1949 if you want to see political. Right. As you said from the outset, we've gone through troubled times before and we've made it through. So uh, like you, we hope that uh, that this is one of those those periods. So one, one last thing, General. So if you... I imagine you speak from time to time to uh, underprivileged communities um, as a function of your your, your station. Um, so, what what do, what's the basic message? Uh, you know, if I live in Western Baltimore or some other, you know, where it doesn't seem like there's any way out, right? And I'm I, I fall into that trap that befells too many of of our African American youth these days because they're like, okay, I'm not a good athlete. Um, and my dad isn't going to be able to get me into Harvard. So what? You know, it's like, okay, so here comes gangs, here comes drugs, here comes misdeeds at all levels. And it just, it, we know how that winds up. So how, how do we get out of that cycle? Yeah, what, what, I, what I, again, you, <laughs> you, you are very insightful. Uh, but um, yeah, what I talk about, uh, really two things in particular, uh, education. I really believe, I mean, education uh, changed the, literally changed the trajectory of my life. Uh, you know, first and, and, you know, first you need to graduate from high school, but if you can, uh, go to college, if you can't, uh, figure out what, what your calling is, what you're good at and, and pursue that as a trade. So I think education is key. The other, which I struggle with, even with my own kids is, and, and, because I struggle with it myself as a kid and that's self-esteem and self-worth. I mean, you have to, Kids have to believe in themselves. They have to believe uh, that they are worth something. They have to have to believe that they can be successful if they're willing to put in the work. Uh, and that's key. You, you know, success is not going to be handed to you in most cases. You're going to go have to go out and work for it. Something you mentioned mentioned earlier about seeing folks who look like you, uh, you know, in in key positions. I hope your listeners will really understand how important that is. Because you're exactly right. You can preach to people all you want, but if they don't see it, uh, it's very hard to embrace it uh, and believe that you can achieve the same thing. Uh, one day, uh, I, I'll never forget this because it was so funny. Um, you know, my father, uh, you know, never touched a golf club in his life. Uh, he, he couldn't tell you the difference between, you know, a tee box uh, and, 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 uh, and, and a rough or green. Um, but I... I went home to visit him one day and he was glued to the TV and it was a, it was a, uh, a golf match and it, and it was featuring Tiger Woods in his heyday. Um, and you know, it was a classic sort of Tiger Woods, you know, you're watching the leader box. Uh, you've got a couple of folks playing ahead of him and he's got his, you know, his red golf shirt on and you know, he's making that comeback. My father was glued to the TV. Didn't have any idea what he was watching, but just the, the notion of, you know, a sport that had so long, uh, you know, initially excluded and then didn't have ma very many African-Americans in the sport of golf to him was fascinating. Uh, and he, he loved it. it, it again, this is not I, I want to be clear here. Uh, this is not about I can't be successful if I don't have people who look like me that I can see that are successful. You know, most of my mentors did not look like me. 
And so we, I don't want to fall in the, in the have people fall into that trap because it, it's just not true. But it is really important, I think, uh, that we focus on things like diversity and we focus on things like getting more uh, diversity in our, our upper leadership grades because it, it's really, really important. But I agree with you 100 percent. The military um, is a leader in that regard, uh, again, because we those stereotypes, those, those, that unconscious bias, those things that we all struggle with are just broken down in front of our, our eyes when you have a woman as your commander and you see how sharp she is, or when you have a, a, a Latinx person as, as your boss and you see how sharp they are. Um, it breaks down all of those things and it, it, it's really, really helpful. One last anecdote. When I was the vice chief of staff, uh, General Mark Welsh was the chief of staff. I saw Mark Welsh every day. And if he was out of town, we traded emails or I talked to him on the phone for three years, every day, have no idea what his politics were, no idea. Because, and he didn't know what mines were, because as you mentioned, we were focused on the Air Force mission. That We had, we didn't have time for that. We were focused on our mission. Uh, and by the way, a, a friend of mine, this was back when the Iraqi war started, and there were a lot of things going on. <laughs> and it, he said, essentially what you said is, if we could gather up all those folks who are out complaining about stuff, put them in a uniform and take them over to Iraq and put them on a battlefield. That would solve a lot of that. Uh, you're right. If we gave some, gave them something to do, uh, but, but you're right. But I, I, I uh, again, it's, uh, I, I'm, I, I am very appreciative that you are asking me these type of questions because, you know, I learned from these discussions. I hope others learn. And that's, that's what it's all about. Having open and honest, conversations, you know, with leaving our, you know, not getting personal uh, and just being open and honest, not judgmental, and also willing to listen to what others have to say. I think if we did more of that, uh, as you know, uh, one of the life lessons I learned, I list in my book is just being kind to people. If we would just do that, you know, we would have a better country. Just, just, just make, just, just have a goal of being nice to someone every day. By the way, you'll appreciate this since I'm just outside D.C. It makes my day every day when I, you know, trudging up, you know, 95 and and, you know, it gets bumper to bumper. It makes my day when I let someone merge into traffic because they first of all, they're shocked <laughs> that I would do it. And they, you know, they turn around, they smile, they wave, you know, think about now what they how much better their day is going to be. Because you you've experienced this, you know the tra people will tighten up so you can't get in. You know why why why, why are we so yeah. mad at each other? Yeah, we're not going to yeah. get there one second faster. You know if you just just but but think about how much good you can do by just making someone's day. Uh, and by the way, you know to your conversation, you look back. Hey, that was a woman that let me in. You know what? I'm not African American. That was African American that let me in. Think about that. Um, just those little things, uh, how they could help us as a country. Everybody now so mad at everybody. I don't understand it. Uh, but yeah, I, I appreciate these questions because, and I wish there was a forum where we could have more discussions like this. Again, do more listening than talking, but I think we'd be a lot better off if we would just respect each other and be kind to each other. Uh, I think that would, that would go a long way. So we're, we're running short on time, but I wanted to pick up on something that you just said. 
and and just uh, for our listeners, uh, mention a proceedings article we published a few years ago. So not on the topic of, of African-American uh, minorities, but this was more to women. But you said you, you talked about about the importance of mentorship. Right. And you said how in your career, your bosses and your mentors didn't look like you, but they, they took the time to see the value in you or to see the the capability and the potential in you. We published a, a, a piece about four or five years ago uh, that was to the it was by two Naval Academy graduates, both senior officers, I think retired 06s. Um, and they were talking about the value, the importance of mentorship of men towards young women in the service. Right. And the article was titled It Takes a Few Good Men. And it was it was to that point. It was, hey, you know, women um, coming up in the service, they don't have as many people, role models who look like them. And men, we men have to be willing to, uh, you, you know, to mentor women, even though it might make us feel a bit uncomfortable, even though somebody might say, well, he's only mentoring her because, you know, he, he likes the way she looks in a skirt or something like that. Right. No, no, no. You know, it's important as leaders that we mentor everybody, not just those who look like us. Right. So the, the responsibility falls not just to people coming up to aspire to greatness uh, or to, you know, to command or whatever, but on those who've made it to aspire to be mentors to those, all of those, uh, I think, underneath them. Anyway, this has been a great conversation. Our guest today uh, has been General Larry Spencer, U.S. Air Force retired. He was the vice chief of staff of the U.S. Air Force before retiring in 2015. His Naval Institute Press book, which is out just now, is called Dark Horse. General Larry Spencer and his journey from the horseshoe to the Pentagon. Sir, it's been great talking to you today. Thank you so much for having uh, having me. I really appreciate it. Uh, by the way, I really appreciate uh, your organization, the U.S. Naval Institute Press. Uh, very, you know, from, I'll just give you my own personal experience. Uh, very professional. Uh, you know, uh, I can't say enough good things about the organization. You're, you're, I would say small but mighty. Um, you, you do a lot of great work. Everyone I've talked to has been very professional, very helpful. Uh, and so I appreciate what you all are doing. And so you've got a great organization. Y you put out some great books. I I've read many of them. That's how I knew about the organization. Um, so thank you so much uh, for having me. Uh, and uh, I hope you all have a great holiday season as we get into that season now. Uh, but keep up the great work because you all are making a huge difference. Sir, thanks so much. I, I will uh, make a make a plug uh, for before I came to work at the Naval Institute, I had no idea that it, you know, it's only about 62 people. Uh, and so imagine a, an organization of 62 people that publishes about 80 books per year, publishes 20, you know, 12 issues of proceedings, uh, six issues of Naval History Magazine, puts on about 10 or 12 in-person conferences around the country uh, per year. Uh, so talk about, you know, uh, yeah, it is, a, it is a small but mighty organization. We do a lot. And uh, we, we, we don't just focus on the sea services, but we are interested in uh, our uh, Army and, uh, and, and Air Force brethren as well. So uh, thanks for, for uh, you know, coming in and being part of the stable of the Naval Institute Press authors. It's, uh, it's great to have you. Well, thank you so much. All right, that wraps up another episode of the Proceedings Podcast. Until next week, remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute.